Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Melanie Dorigo, who's running for Congress in New York's 3rd Congressional District. Melanie Dorigo, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. You're in New York right now. New York is the epicenter, essentially, of the coronavirus pandemic that's currently sweeping across America. We, we should probably start by talking about, firstly, how you're coping there and how your team's doing. Yeah, thank you so much for asking. Um, you know, we are, we've transitioned our campaign um, from, from traditional campaigning methods to community outreach. So we have been calling community members to do wellness checks and seeing how they're doing um, and trying to come up with digital programming to help our community and get involved with mutual aid funds and uh, figure out how we can assist and, and just really be helpful and do the most good in our community. Um, you know, certainly having to transition from, you know, a huge ground game of um, canvassing to, you know, complete digital organizing and phone calls has been, um, you know, it's been, a, it's been a bit of a challenge, but we We've been able to overcome it. Uh, we certainly worry at the campaign about our volunteers from a mental health uh, perspective and even my staff members, you know, just doing daily check-ins and, and ensuring that people are feeling okay. Um, you know, this, this pandemic really has changed almost daily. And so some days I find that folks are feeling okay, um, but then the next day, you know, um, they can just they can get very nervous and anxious and, and even depressed. Um, you know, I have a friend that passed away from COVID-19. I have volunteers who are sick with it now. Um, and, and it's you know, it's it's been hard, uh, but we've just been trying our best to keep everybody united and let everybody know that there's a community here for them. Um, and I've seen, you know, a lot of silver linings. You know, I've seen com the community come together in really profound and amazing ways, um, you know, whether it's raising money to feed hospital workers lunches and dinners, uh, raising money to buy PPE, which is personal protective equipment. Uh, we have a huge shortage here in America. And it's um, it's 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 really quite terrifying. Um, uh, but, you know, even down to helping neighbors, you know, every time we have to order food or make a you know, it's scary to, to even take a trip to the grocery store right now. But we always check on our neighbors, our senior citizens to see if uh, they might need something. I have a volunteer who has chickens, and so he always has a lot of eggs, and he was doing some drops to other volunteers' houses to make sure they had enough food. Um, so, you know, it's been really nice, and I think that's what I try to focus on right now. You know, um, obviously, it's, you know, it, it's top of mind for everybody here, um, and we are doing what we can to help and assist, um, but, but also looking out for each other and making sure that mentally we're okay. That community spirit as you were talking about, that's come up is a, a silver lining at a really difficult time. But that community spirit has had to rise up and support individuals because there has been a delay, if not absence of response from the federal government out there to support 
those states and those communities. And you've stated that there's, quote, no denying that the United States was unprepared for COVID-19. But how we respond in this moment is what will define us. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity to unite, create an America that works for everyone, and for people to take that community spirit and keep going with it in the future. What do you think we can learn from this moment? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I'll give you just a little background first. Before I decided to run for Congress, um, you know, I obviously had been involved in activism and, and worked on other campaigns. But for my career, I was I worked as an allied health professional and I worked with patients. I worked with communities. I worked with organizations, building health improvement programs, reducing risk, um, improving culture. And so I've looked at it, you know, um, through the lens of public health. And, um, you know, one of the tools that I used when, when I was trying to build these programs is, um, be, uh, you know, really um, behavioral health modification, right? So how do we get folks to believe that they can be healthier? How do we get them to believe that they can have these things? Um, behavioral change is very, very difficult. Um, and, and typically, it's a very long process. And, um, you know, I have been a very strong proponent of, you know, Medicare for all single payer health care system um, in, in my race. I'm actually the only candidate that is proposing and pushing for that. Uh, and I think, you know, four months ago, even though um, Senator Bernie Sanders has been running on Medicare for all single payer health care system, you know, now the last the last election and now this one where it is more top of mind in conversation, I think. Most folks, um, or maybe not most, but but many, many folks, certainly where I live, we're still looking at the single payer healthcare system as this radical idea, as something that was just really outside the scope of of what they would want for their own lives. And um, you know, in the last two weeks, six point six million people have lost their jobs here in America. And all of a sudden, everything that we've been advocating for has really become front and center where folks are really forced to confront what it looks like when someone doesn't have health care. Now, in the lens of COVID-19, uh, it, it is a greater public health issue, and it affects everybody, um, although we do know that it is um, predominantly right now affecting uh, working class and poorer citizens uh, and folks that are living here. Um, but it is almost this great equalizer in the sense that, you know, COVID-19 comes for everybody. It's it's not just poor people. It's not just middle class people, but it's also very, very wealthy people. And so I think, you know, when it's easier to change someone's mind or get someone to care about something when it directly affects them, that's sort of just the way it goes. Um, and now for the first time, we're seeing this happen and where we're seeing not only um, workers who who make, you know, maybe barely a living wage, maybe less than a living wage lose their job, but we're also seeing lawyers who make maybe half a million dollars or more also lose their job. And so I think it has really put into crystal clear focus this idea that perhaps, you know, just perhaps, just maybe that health insurance should not be tied to your employer, that maybe the single payer health care system is the way to go, that maybe it's not so radical after all. But maybe what in fact is radical is denying health care to people who really, really need it. So I, I'm very hopeful that we, that that will be another silver lining to this, this, um, you know, this pandemic, this tragedy that we're living with right now, that we will be able to have those meaningful conversations and we will be able to create a healthcare system that provides healthcare to everyone that lives here in America um, or is visiting America. So 
I think that is a, a you know a very very strong possibility. But we're also looking at other aspects like paid sick leave, paid family leave, and really strengthening workers' rights that uh, many of us have been you know advocating for for a long time. And there's always been pushback, but now again we're seeing this come up in a um, you know in a very stark way. Uh, rent control. Um, you know there, there's so many issues now, and even you know the Green New Deal. Um, you know, that, you know, in the Green New Deal here in America, which I'm sure you're aware of, is really a whole overhaul on fixing our environment, on combating climate change, on ensuring that we switch to 100% renewable energy and, you know, reduce and then ultimately eliminate carbon emissions. Um, but it can usher in a green new economy. Now, four or five months ago, people said, oh, it's a really nice dream. It's a really nice idea. But how could we ever do that? And I think that, unfortunately, after this pandemic, you know, we're going to lose a lot of businesses. And we are going to need, like the fortunate part is we will need to rebuild. And there's there's probably never been a better time than, uh, you know, the aftermath of this pandemic to come together on a global stage and look at the future of our planet. Now is the time. It's almost an opportunity to reset and usher in a green new economy and be able to save our planet. So, you know, a lot of what um, a lot of the issues that progressives have been fighting for are coming into um, really the mainstream in, in a very large way. Now, a difficult situation that some New Yorkers have found themselves in when it comes to the issue of healthcare during the coronavirus pandemic is that New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has been stepping up and doing his job in ensuring that New Yorkers are fully informed about what's going on. He's been ensuring the state is prepared and requesting the support and the supplies that the state needs to protect individuals. And he received a lot of praise for his response here. Before this happened, he proposed a several hundred million dollar cut to Medicaid in his budget. Now, how do you square the response that Governor Cuomo is doing in New York to the coronavirus pandemic with the response that he's taken before this to healthcare. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, and I think it really sometimes shows the duality of people. Um, on the one hand, yes, Cuomo has done uh, a very good job at leading New York to this crisis. Certainly, there has been a complete absence of federal leadership. Uh, there has been very little support from the federal government. Uh, Cuomo himself has criticized the New York delegation um, for not fighting hard enough for New York. New York is receiving very little aid. Um, in fact, I think it, it's only probably no surprise um, was only Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who called out the, these stimulus, <clears throat> excuse me, these stimulus um, acts that the federal government did uh, pass. But the, the truth is, how, you know, you can fight to protect and contain the the pandemic, which I think is what Cuomo has done uh, quite, you know, quite successfully is he, he's tried to calm New Yorkers and, and ensure everyone has the information that they need. But the other hand of it is that he has advocated for a budget that would cut health care from, you know, our from our, our poorest folks who live in New York. Um, and, and then there's been a lot of other um, policies that he has dragged into the budget. And, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the budget was just voted on last week and it did pass. And it essentially what it, we've never fund education properly in New York state and they didn't increase education. So essentially there will be a big hole in the education system um, and schools will have to, to you know, 
likely cut salaries or cut eliminate positions, cut programs. Um, and, and I suspect this will be a, a huge issue. Um, you know, we're homeschooling our kids. I think we're in our third or fourth week now. Uh, it is very likely that um, our children won't go back to school until maybe best case scenario next year, September, when they start. Um, so, so he's looking at containing, but he's not looking, I think, at the future and, and what it means for our state. Um, you know, containing the disease or the virus now, um, fine but it doesn't help people in the future. You know, he also said that he would freeze uh, mortgages for 90 days and that um, lenders would tack on those payments at the end of their mortgage, which is not the case. He did not do that. He just urged uh, lenders, which you and I know is, is about as good as nothing. Um, there was no mandate in place. He did put a 90-day um, moratorium on evictions, but the problem with that is every we have 6.6 .6 million people losing their jobs in this country. Many of them are in New York. Uh, folks that can't pay their rent today, they're not going to get a job and be able to make up three months' rent in, in 90 days. All that rent for three months would be due at the end of 90 days. So we're not looking out for people. There will be a lot of people losing their housing. Um, there are a lot of people losing their jobs. There's a lot of people that do not have health care. So I think it's a short-sighted approach. Um, and, and again, as I said, I'm grateful for his steady, calm uh, leadership through just trying to get hospitals set up. Um, you may not know this, but uh, FEMA came up, and I think this was in large part because of Governor Cuomo pushing for it. The Jacob Javits Center, which is a huge, huge, huge convention center, is now set up to take COVID patients. There are other hospitals popping up, um, outside hospitals, tents, tents in Central Park to treat patients. Um, so, you know, there's there's a real duality here. Um, and, and I think containing the disease, containing the virus and containing the spread is obviously the first step, but there's so much more that needs to be done. And I think we really need to hold him accountable and not just fall in love with him because <laughs> Donald Trump is missing because he is lying to Americans, right? We need a leader that can not just lead through a crisis, but set us up for the future. And I don't think that Cuomo's there yet. You mentioned there about how Donald Trump is spreading misinformation regarding coronavirus and the government's response to it. There's those that believe that the media is playing a part in that by broadcasting live and unfiltered his press conferences every day. We've seen Donald Trump tweet about how he sees these great ratings around his briefings and how they're being seen by millions of people every day. So he's clearly proud of the amount of people seeing them, but the information contained in them often has to be corrected at a later date by medical professionals. Do you believe that the media is at fault here for broadcasting these press conferences live and instead they should either be broadcasting the select bits that are fact-checked and correct or simply broadcasting it with some sort of fact-checking system alongside so people are aware of what is and isn't true? Yeah, I mean, isn't it astounding that we even have to ask ourselves this this question about the president of the United States of America? Uh, what we have seen is that there are some news sources that have said we are not broadcasting this live anymore, and I applaud them for that effort. I think he's listen. Donald Trump has been dangerous um, ever since he was inaugurated. He's been dangerous for this country, um, and we're seeing it now on a whole new level. He is 
woefully unprepared. Uh, he does not have the knowledge that he needs. Uh, it, it's almost like he has never been briefed on the on the topic, and he's up there talking. Um, just whatever comes to his mind, wherever he thinks he's going to get the biggest reaction for, which you know would be true to his past as a reality TV host. Um, I do think that we should stop broadcasting at least his portion of the press conference. I think what would be helpful is to maybe have Dr. Fauci, who's been um, really trying his best to get facts out to the American people. Having a, you know, a daily press briefing by someone like Dr. Fauci, I think would be helpful. I think there are folks that are tuning in, even, even if they feel an adverse reaction to the president, of which there are many here. Um, it's a scary time and we need the information. Um, so I do think, you know, there should be a press briefing. I don't think it should be Donald Trump's press briefing. Um, and I, I do think, um, you know, not broadcasting his particular portion of the briefing would be very helpful. I mean, we've already seen um, deaths because of, um, well, I'll just call it out for, for Donald Trump's lies. Uh, you know, you, you may have heard he's been pushing chloroquine as a potential uh, drug to save COVID patients. And there was an older couple that heard his press briefing and they, they had chloroquine in their um, cabinet because they had a koi fish pond. And I guess it's, you know, it was a totally different level than a human should take, but they each took a teaspoon and the husband uh, died. So, you know, th this is what um, misinformation and lies look like in reality. Um, you know, the president of the United States is charged with taking care of our country, leading our country. And, and it's he's supposed to be a factual and reliable source. Uh, and now many of us know that to not be true, but there still are many people in this country that believe him, you know, and, and I think it's become uh, increasingly dangerous as we get deeper into this pandemic. Let's mm -hmm. turn to some of the other issues that you're fighting for in this campaign. You're a community activist, you're a healthcare advocate, which is why I imagine you're so passionate about the issue of healthcare in America. And you're running a grassroots campaign because as it says on your website, you want to quote, stand up to the Trump agenda and fight for Long Island's families, not become part of the same broken system. How do you go about fixing that broken system that you're seeking to challenge, if it is indeed fixable? Yeah. Well, you know, I always go back to, cause I hear that a lot. Well, but even if you win, how are you going to change when everyone feels this way? Well, look, you don't run for Congress to be comfortable and complacent. If you status quo, you like the way things are, you're not going to uproot your life and run for Congress. I'm running for Congress because I believe we can change the system. I don't want to become part of the system. I'm, I'm there to change the system. I am so encouraged by all of the amazing candidates all across the country that are stepping up just like me to do the same thing. And yes, um, it, it's this, the stats are not on our side. The history is not on our side that we, you know, that we'll all win our races. No, but if we keep coming and we keep educating, we keep growing and we keep organizing, eventually there will be enough of us there. I also think, um, you know, even electing five or 10 more of us to what is already um, a growing progressive infrastructure within the Democratic Party, um, then that voice becomes louder. It can be amplified louder. And the you know, the louder we amplify those voices, I think the more it will resonate and the more people we will reach. Um, and, and so it has to start. You have to start a process. You know, I, I know that everyone loves instant gratification. I do, too. But we have to look at the longer play here. I don't have illusions of grandeur that, um, you know, that I will win in November and then we will over 
overturned Citizens United and, you know, the first, well, obviously it's a constitutional amendment, but, uh, or overturn something, you know, major right away. No, it's probably not going to happen day one, but I'm there to fight for it. And I'm there to grow those coalitions and I'm there to spread that information and build the presence around issues so that we can really, truly fight for Americans. And I think that that is really important. Um, I also think that thinking outside the box is really helpful. And, and it's something that I have seen many of many progressive uh, challengers do. Uh, you know, one of the things that I have done is introduce the paid by act, which is stands for politician accountability information disclosures benefiting you. Um, and it would force transparency and accountability on politicians and candidates by having them disclose corporate and special interest campaign donations. That would be um, conflicts of interest. And so, you know, for example, uh, you know, when a politician parrots talking points from, from say, like the healthcare industry, in whether it's a campaign video, you know, opposing Medicare for all or, or uh, opposing the Green New Deal, something like that. The paid by act would require them to have a disclaimer for transparency to voters. And the disclaimer would explain that they receive money from that relevant industry and how much. So if I, you know, if there was a politician that was against Medicare for all, we would need to, they would need to disclose in their ad or their vote. And they would say, well, I receive X amount from the pharmaceutical, insurance, medical supplier industry. And I think that that is a really, um, important way to help um, average folks who maybe aren't paying so much attention and reading all the time about politics and what's happening or looking through FEC filings, which nearly no one does, right? Um, it would allow them to see who they are paid by. Um, so like when I take that vote, I don't take corporate PAC money at all. I'm, you know, raising money only by people. Uh, I'm, I'm fighting for people. So when I take a vote, it's going to say paid by people. You know, it's not going to say paid by the insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry. And so this is obviously not a fix. It doesn't necessarily uh, reduce the amount of corporate money that we are uh, seeing in the system. But I think if politicians who are very comfortable taking all of this money start to realize that it's making their base uneasy, then maybe it'll force a behavior change pattern until we can ultimately overturn Citizens United. So that's just one example of a way that we could work around the system, right? And, and I think that that's what we need. Um, this, this status quo approach that only helps, um, you know, the very wealthy in America is not working for the majority of America. So it's a about time we elected a Congress that will work for America. You're seeking to unseat Democratic incumbent Thomas Swazi, who's the vice chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus, a bipartisan group that seeks to create bipartisan cooperation on key policy issues. Now, when I say that, most people might think, what's the problem with this individual? He's working across the aisle to get things done, working with the other side, trying to find solutions that will get through Congress. So why do you believe what he's doing in his district isn't appropriate and why you believe that he needs to be replaced? Yes. Well, let, let me start by saying that, you know, this notion of bipartisanship and working together to get things done is the dream, right? That's the ideal. Um, and so I don't I would never fault anyone for saying, um, you know, we have to work together to find solutions because I think that is important and it's it's really key uh, to any successful enterprise or organization or government. Um, however, it, the problem becomes when you have a president like Donald Trump 
and a Republican Party that has completely turned their back on their constituents and the country and just got in line and lined up and, and parroted whatever um, lie of the day Donald Trump was selling. Um, you know, this particular group, the problem solvers group that he's uh, the vice chair of, they overwhelmingly fight for Republican legislation. And what I have found and many others in my district have found is that his voice becomes stymied. Now, whether it's because he wants it to be stymied or because he gets pressure from this group, I don't know. Um, but this group overwhelmingly favors Republican legislation. And a good example of that is the emergency border aid funding bill that was passed um, at the end of June last year. Now, Donald Trump, uh, and I'm sure you're aware of this, has manufactured a uh, crisis at our southern border where refugees and migrants are coming and presenting for asylum. Um, now, I went down to the border to do some humanitarian work last summer, and so I saw this firsthand. Uh, you know, I met people that were fleeing because of sexual violence, because of physical violence, because there was no food, there was no water, there were no jobs, just abject poverty. And so that most of them were coming with, like, little little children. And um, they had nothing. They were, you know, presenting with, like, ripped trash bags with all of their life's belongings in there. Um, these are not dangerous criminals. These are people no different than you and I, except, you know, they, they unfortunately were born in a place that didn't have an infrastructure to support, um, to support people. And um, my, my opponent voted for this bill um, that essentially stripped out all protections for them. Uh, you know, the bill in its initial construction had... Um, provisions for health care, provisions for food and water and medicine and um, legal aid. Uh, Mitch, when it went to the Senate, Mitch McConnell did his thing. He stripped it all out. It went back to the House. And I, I know that Nancy Pelosi, who's the Speaker of the House, was working all day to try to get some of the provisions back in. I mean, that's what it looks like when you're working together, right? Like, okay, so maybe I can't have all of it, but let's see what I can get. Uh, the Problem Solvers Caucus went to Nancy Pelosi and said, we're not voting for your bill. Uh, we're not going to do it. We're only voting for Mitch McConnell's bill. And then their their group is large enough that it would not have given her the votes. Now, Nancy Pelosi is a lot of things, and she's uh, certainly very savvy. She's never going to put a bill on the floor that she knows is not going to pass. And so ultimately, we passed this emergency border aid funding bill. Now, at the time, publicly, the media was reporting on um, the torture that America was committing at the southern border, ripping kids away from their mothers, locking them in cages. Um, a lot of stories were surfacing about sexual abuse and et cetera, like really horrible, horrible um, stories were, were coming out. And so when this bill was passed, the emergency funding bill, people kind of took a collective sigh. Oh, thank goodness. They're doing something. They're going to address these atrocities at our border. Well, no, because if you actually read the bill, you would have learned that uh, almost half of this like $4 billion spent, I think it ultimately ended up being $4.4 .4 billion. Uh, over half of it went to expanding detention centers. No guarantees, no guarantees for medicine. Um, only about 300,000 of the bill actually was specifically designated for food and water and medicine. So, you know, those are things that the Problem Solvers Caucus does. Um, there's not a single piece of legislation that they have, that because of them, they've passed that have helped Democrats. Um, and so you see it in actual legislation, but more importantly, uh, you know, my opponent was one of the last to the table to support impeachment. Now, as a Democrat, that's very, very surprising, particularly as a Democrat in a Democratic district. Uh, not only when he, you know, when he finally did support impeachment, 
he was interviewed by one of our local newspapers, and he told the news reporter that he hoped for a speedy trial with no witnesses. Now, no Democrat was saying that. Uh, and then after, you know, the after Trump was acquitted in the Senate, um, my opponent hosted the National Prayer Breakfast, which is really a pay to play event um, where, you know, foreign nationals and, you know, very wealthy individuals, business owners, etc., pay large sums of money to attend this breakfast and events surrounding this breakfast. It's where M Maria Butina was able to infiltrate. And, uh, you know, she obviously did it with the Republican Party. But this is the type of event this is that my opponent chaired and hosted. Now, day after acquittal, Trump gets on the stage. He's waving around these newspapers that say he's acquitted. He's attacking Democrats. He's disparaging Democrats, which is what, you know, this and this event typically is a nonpartisan event. However, it becomes very partisan. So after he is attacking everyone, you know, Trump stays at the, at the podium. My opponent goes over and shakes his hand and then sits on the dais and sits next to Mike Pence. And so, you know, as, as if you are a Democrat, this is quite surprising. Uh, and, you know, there are numerous examples that, that I could give you on this where he has stayed very silent. He hasn't spoken up. He hasn't supported or fought for democratic values. I mean, good Lord, before I joined this, you know, launched my campaign, uh, I, I found out that my opponent was long supporting the Hyde Amendment, which is an amendment here in the U.S. that uh, does not provide federal funding for women to access abortion if they are, uh, you know, it adversely affects poor women, women of color and young people, uh, but veterans as well. Uh, and, and, and so I'm thinking to myself, like, this guy's a Democrat. You know, it, it's it's really egregious. And I think it's it's indicative of wanting to toe the line and not take a stand and, you know, really just kind of hide in the shadows and only come out when it's safe and only support something when it's safe, when when the uh, majority of representatives are supporting something, unless it's a super safe topic. And I just think right now that is not what this country needs. That is not how we fight back against, you know, a rogue GOP and the Trump agenda. We need representatives who are crystal clear on their values, who are crystal clear that they are there to fight for the people of this country, to fight for their district. And so right now, uh, you know, we have a representative who is not doing that. We have a representative who is much more comfortable cozying up to to his problem solvers caucus friends, which, by the way, is compro comprised of, um, you know, half Republicans and half Democrats. And he's happy to just, you know, assist them in passing their Republican legislation. And that is fine. That's his right to do that. But it is not, you know, it's also my right to challenge that and run against him because I think our district deserves um, a Democratic leader who, or Democratic representative who's going to represent Democratic values. The race between yourself and Thomas Swazi has been shaped up essentially as yourself a democratic activist positioning yourself on the quote far left versus a centrist representative in the current incumbent do you think that's a fair assessment of the race or how would you characterize the setup between you two in this contest yeah i mean i don't I don't really subscribe to that language typically because I think all it serves is tapping into anger on on, what, on both sides of it, right? Whether you self-identify as a far left or you you know, self-identify as a centrist or a moderate. I'm not even sure what a centrist and a moderate really means anymore. You know, typically the Democratic Party based their, um, you know, you know, based their agenda off of the presidential 
um, you know, issues, right? So now we're looking at uh, here in America, we still have two candidates left. It was uh, obviously Senator Sanders is still in the race and uh, Joe Biden is still in the race and they have different approaches. But our entire election um, from the presidential side, all of our debates, they were centered around issues like a Green New Deal, Medicare for all things that would typically or issues that would typically be called far left. But those far left issues issues have now become mainstream. They are now what I consider to be moderate positions. right? Um, so I don't typically characterize uh, my race like that. I characterize myself as someone who's fighting for democratic values, someone who's going to fight and stand up for women, unlike my opponent, someone who's fighting for immigrant rights, unlike my opponent, someone who is fighting for a planet that my children and my grandchildren can live on. My opponent wants to just give tax breaks. And I mean, that that's not going to get us there. You know, I, I'm fighting for health care for all because I believe that it's a human right, not a privilege. My opponent does not believe that. I mean, the Democratic Party used to be the party of the people. And I feel like I'm just trying to bring that home in my district. Right. And so I really run a very issues based campaign uh, because I think that's oh, I know that that is how you connect with people. That's how you bring people in. If I come out saying, you know, you're a centrist this or you're a far left that, nobody wants to talk to you. And, and I don't think it's really helpful. Um, you know, my goal is and always has been bringing people together and creating policy that will uplift and help everyone. Um, so, so that's, you know, that, that is, that's where I stand on that. You're obviously running in the primary. If you're successful there, you'll end up in the general election for the district. Why should voters elect you in New York's third congressional district? Give us the, the elevator pitch, as it were, as to why voters should pick you as their next representative. They've heard your policies. They've heard what you stand for. Why should voters elect you? Yeah, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. I just want to do a quick plug for my website, and then I will go right into it. Uh, my website is darigo2020.com, D-A-R-R-I-G-O, 2020.com, if you want to find out more information on me. Voters should elect me because I am offering a choice. I am offering the choice to go back to representing and fighting for democratic values. I am offering the choice of giving people an opportunity to thrive. And that means supporting single payer healthcare system because healthcare is a right and not a privilege. It means fighting for gun safety legislation because I have three children and I know what it's like to be afraid that my children aren't going to come home. It means supporting and fighting for women's rights, including repealing the Hyde Amendment and protecting Roe v. Wade. It means fighting for a Green New Deal because that ensures a future for not only me, my children and my grandkids, but all of us. It means electing a representative who's rejecting corporate PAC money because my policies aren't for sale. I cannot be bought. It is time that we had a representative who's fighting for us. And right now, that's my plan. Melanie Dorigo, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. That was Melanie DeRigo, who's running for Congress in New York's 3rd Congressional District. 
You can find out more about her on Twitter at Dorigo Melanie or at Dorigo2020.com. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you please give us a five-star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Until next time, goodbye.